The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. champions as Dustin Rhodes collides with Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and of course the man to my right, the mask assassin who had calmed you down as you were making your way to the ring, I might add. That's exactly right. This goes back a long ways with myself and the assassin and the respect and the knowledge that he has that my brain just takes it all in. And I'm going to tell you right now, Dustin Rhodes, I'm going to tell you right now, Dusty Rhodes, I can't stand your face. You're a snotty-nosed little punk, and I can't stand nothing about you. That U.S. vulture wearing around your waist was a gift because you haven't wrestled Mr. Wonderful, by far the greatest wrestler to ever step into the WCW. I'm going to take you to stool, Dustin Rhodes. I'm going to take you over the limits, and I know this for a fact that you ain't man enough. You got a yellow streak down your back like your old man, and you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. And when it's all over and done with, the assassin will be able to sleep, and I'm gonna walk out with that U.S. heavyweight belt. This has really become a, a very heavy personal vendetta with you and the Rhodes family. Let me say something. It makes my heart feel good to see a spirited young athlete like Paul Orndorff. Clash of Champions, St. Petersburg Bayfront Arena, November the 10th. This man will go into the ring against Dustin Rhodes for the United States Heavyweight Championship. Rest assured of one thing, Jellybean, he and I are going to do everything that we have to do to ensure the fact that he walks out of the ring the new United States Heavyweight Champion and that Dustin doesn't walk out at all. Now, one thing I want to point out to you, Dusty Rhodes, jelly bean. You see, what is a jelly bean? It's a little confectionery that when you squeeze them, they turn soft inside, just like the grit has left your gut. And I'm gonna tell you something, Rhodes, because last week on this very same program, I told you that no member of your family was safe from my wrath until I get satisfaction from you. Not your snaggle-toothed, granite-trumpet-looking mammy, not your Betty Boop-looking wife, and most of all, not your slim Jim son, Dustin. Well, you rest assured of one thing. My warning to you is that no one is safe. Now, I'm going to pose a question to all the people in the viewing audience. Dusty Rhodes has heard my challenge. He's heard my threats. What kind of a man would leave his family totally unprotected and double his own security around himself? What kind of a man? You answer the question yourself. Boy, this clash is going to be red hot fans, and we'll have more 
on Saturday night right after this timeout. Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz, and today's episode will be a part of the flagship TMPT interview series, a part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. Of course, today is a very, very rare guest, as we will be talking to none other than Jody Hamilton, a.k.a. The Assassin. If you go through his storied career, He's been a former NWA World Tag Team Champion in many, many different territories. A four-time AWA Southern World Tag Team Champion. He is a part of the WCW Hall of Fame as well as the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. The Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. I mean, any kind of attribute or accolade you can give. Jody Hamilton, a.k.a. The Assassin, a.k.a. The Masked Assassin, is probably on that list. If you think about some of the greatest masked wrestlers of all time, his name definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, should come up very, very early on in that conversation. Speaking of masked wrestlers, we do talk about the passing of Mr. Wrestling Number 2, a.k.a. Johnny Walker, who Jody Hamilton had a very, very long feud with down in Georgia. Possibly the most longest-running feud of all time. It just lasted years. And obviously when it lasts that long, you know that it probably was making a pretty good chunk of change. It was probably making a lot of money. You know it was drawing a lot of fans. So it's one of those things where if it's hot, you got to keep it going. And we do talk about that in the interview that, hey, it was so popular, you kind of had to you know, keep it going. You can't end it, and, and you got to keep trying to make the money. And it's just smart of the promoter and, and the booker to keep that feud going. Of course, we will also talk about the Assassins and how that team came about. And the other member of the group is Tom Renesto. And it's interesting because Tom is 12 years older than Jody. And you think about the Assassins, you immediately think, oh, Jody must be the Assassin number two. And and Tom must be the number one because he's uh, many years older. And we talked to the interview because I was even kind of like almost confusing them uh, a little bit and Jody says he's assassin number one, Tom Renesto is assassin number two, but so many people kind of screw that up and mess that up because of the age difference. But really, Jody is the, you know, the original assassin, the real deal, the man in the golden mask. So we go through that tag team and, and that chemistry and how the team was formed, how the team broke up. Also, why they were a different name in a JCP NWA Mid-Atlantic territory where they were the Mighty Bolo and the Great Bolo. And that is an interesting story as well because, as Jody kind of goes further and will explain in the interview, that Tom Renesto was already Bolo down there and he was over huge. So there's no sense in kind of changing the name or changing the gimmick. Why break, excuse me, why change something if it isn't broken? And obviously, you know, it, that wasn't broken at all. He, Tom Renesta was huge down in the Carolinas as Bolo, so you don't want to change it up. So obviously, you know, you had Jody the mix, he becomes the mighty Bolo, and the rest, as they say, is history. But everywhere else in the world, you know, res, whether it be wrestling in Canada, Japan, Australia, you know, all the different territories, the Assassins were such a huge draw, such a, a great villain tag team, such hated heels. We do go into kind of that drawing heat, how they were able to draw it, what they were able to do to kind of create that massive heat. And we talk about some riots that were caused that they basically caused themselves as they were really, really just hated, hated heels all all around the world and in, in these territories, just absolutely hated. There's some death threats involved. I mentioned the riots, and obviously when you're you're drawing heat, these fans legit want to see some blood, and they legit want to hurt these guys. So it's all kind of a part of the game, and it's all a part about being a heel, especially those old-school days where you would kind of deal with that a lot more. Obviously, you never deal with that today, but those old-school days, you deal with that a lot, kind of dealing with riots and crazy fans. And the Assassins were right there on the top of the list, really, really kind of drawing that heat and really making these fans go nuts. So I kind of try to break it down with, with Jody. and say, you know, how, you know, how are we able to do that? What were you guys doing? Is there something that you guys were doing that just made everybody nuts? And he said, really, it was their style. People had never seen that style before. It was a lot of two-on-ones. It was a lot of fast-tagging. 
getting in and out. It was a lot of great teamwork. They always just kind of remained a team and had just great, great chemistry. So that's kind of what just did it. It was just them in the ring being classic, pure heels and really being able to get themselves over and establish themselves as heels and that they were going to cheat and they were going to do some two-on-ones. And it just infuriated these crowds where they would physically cause riots. So just some great stuff there as we kind of go down memory lane. And we really do cover all the different territories that he was a part of. We even talk about how he got into the business. He basically was a amateur boxer at first. And his brother, Larry Hamilton, was a famous wrestler, legendary wrestler, also known as the Missouri Mauler. He basically helped, he didn't necessarily get uh, Larry into the business, but he definitely helped him along the way. And we talk about a great story, the kind of the precursor to the WWWF, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. This is Capital Wrestling with Vince McMahon Sr. there and at the helm, but not necessarily the only man in charge at this point. So Vince McMahon Sr. is there and he books the headlining match at MSG with not the Assassins, but the Hamilton brothers. A very, very young Jody Hamilton. He's only 19 years old, and he's headlining MSG. 20,000 people, sellout crowd. One of the biggest crowds ever in the history of MSG. And he goes into that whole story, and he goes into that whole match. But how nervous he was, and how young he was, and all the cops that were around the ring. And just kind of a really, really legendary story that he's able to share. Like I mentioned, it's really the precursor to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, the WWWF Capital Wrestling. And, you know, very, very cool stuff. And he talks a lot about that New York office and why he really didn't like New York. And the town was really expensive and, the, you know, maybe it was down, wasn't drawing as much money, wasn't paying as much. So really kind of why he went back to his roots in the Midwest and traveled all around and did all the different territories, whether it be... Um, the central states or whether it be jcp eventually or even traveling on down to florida or really kind of getting into georgia championship wrestling where he really really made a big name for himself and made himself a home we do go all through the territories and talk about the territory days of old and we'll go down memory lane and we'll really kind of touch on each territory and each kind of territory brings a great story along with it. Of course, also we'll talk about some legendary wrestlers and some legendary matches along the way. We bring up Dick Steinborn. We talk about the Funks. We talk about the Kentuckians. A lot of great stuff. And of course, cannot forget to mention this. We do go all the way to his retirement, kind of uh, what ended his career, and then his days as a trainer. And if you talk about his time in WCW, Jim Hurd brings him in, and you always hear kind of negative stories about Jim Hurd, and nobody kind of has a lot of positive things to say, but Jody Hamilton does. He really uh, was a friend of Jim Hurd. Jim Hurd brought him into WCW, knew that they needed Jody. He knew that they needed a lot of help, and he could help in every facet of the game, whether it be training, booking, managing. He did it all for WCW, and He's got a different opinion of Jim Hurd than a lot of other people that we've heard before. So that was very kind of cool to get into that. We do, of course, talk about the WCW power plant as well and the wrestlers that came out of there, the training that was done there. We talk about a few of the big names that come out of the power plant eventually. A guy like DDP, Diamond Dallas Page, Kevin Nash, the Giant, Bill Goldberg, just to name a few. And he played a part in all of that, really, as the, as the man in charge down there at the power plant. He really was in charge of uh, creating a, a great kind of wrestling facility. And now, you know, it was basically the, the precursor to the performance center over there for WWE and NXT. That is for damn sure. We also do talk about Deep South Wrestling and how he had the affiliation from 2005 to 2007 with the WWE as a developmental territory. Obviously, at that point, you did have OVW and FCW as well kind of creeping up. So we talk about what happened there, why it was shut down, and all of a sudden, one night, boom, Johnny Ace comes in and it's closed. We do get that great story and a great story about Vince McMahon Jr. as well. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a really fun one. But before I send it off to some TMPT business and send it off to the interview, I want to also mention some other shows, a part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. 
We've got the University of Dutch with Dutch Mantel over on the MLW Radio Network. We have Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard on the TMPT feed. We have the franchise Shane Douglas's Taking You to School, which is on Vince Russo's The Brand. And, of course, we have Rick Bassman's Talking Tough and Three-Way Dance, which is available on Podcast One. So without any further ado, I send along to the assassin, Jody Hamilton. And now joining us on the line is a former NWA World Tag Team Champion in many different territories, a former four-time AWA Southern Tag Team Champion, and a WCW and Pro Wrestling Hall of Famer. He is the legendary, the assassin, Jody Hamilton. Mr. Hamilton, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thanks for inviting me. Now, obviously, legendary, legendary wrestler. Like I said, multiple-time champion all over the world of many different territories, Hall of Famer, a few times over. What has the assassin been up to lately? And what, like, what have you been up to nowadays? Oh, 
I train a little, train some guys, uh, some other young kids uh, every now and then. And uh, other than that, I'm just retired, laid back, taking it easy. Oh, so you're still training? You're actually still doing that? Yeah, I got a uh, a forty foot uh, forty foot long garden uh, up there in my backyard, and I got a real good eighteen foot ring set up in it and everything, and I got some. All workout facilities you need in the back uh, behind the ring and stuff. So I got everything. I it's 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 a well equipped gym with a ring. You know, uh, yeah. in my barn up here. So you still kind of have a passion for wrestling and training, even after all these years, huh? Oh, I'll always have a passion for wrestling. That's great, though. Still, you know, actively trained. Do you have a lot of guys still training under you? you know, I don't train them many guys at a time. Can't uh, you? You can't really train a whole bunch of guys at one time. You know, one, two, three at the most uh, at a time, and everything. That way, you're you making sure that everybody there absorbs what you're teaching. I got gotcha. you. Now, as far as you yourself, how did you end up getting into the wrestling business? I mean, we're going back a ways here, but how did you yourself get into? It? Was it because of? Uh, your uh, your brother? Well, I've always been interested in wrestling, even before my brother started. And when he started, uh, that got me excited about it. And, and uh, then uh, between between see football seasons in high school and so on, uh, I uh, would go out on the uh, on Gus Karras, who was the uh, promoter, Midwest promoter, but he had his home office there in St. Joe, my hometown, and. Uh, I would uh, go out on his carnival and uh, and pick on all comers, boxing or wrestling. And basically, that's how I got started in the, in the wrestling business. Now, this is around, I guess, the, the late 50s. So when you're training, is it anything like the training that you were giving to guys today, or is it completely different, or did you not really have some official training? Uh, yeah, I did. I had a I had uh, Ronnie Atchison, and uh, who was from St. Joe, and it was a big, big name in uh, the wrestling business. <clears throat> Sonny Myers, who was also a big name in the business, uh, he helped me, and of course my brother also. So, yeah, I had uh, I had a lot of professional help before I got started on my own. And you mentioned boxing and wrestling. You were a good amateur boxer, correct? Yeah, yeah, I uh, I like boxing. I was considering a career in boxing, and uh, I had, I guess, uh, I had 19 semi-pro fights, and uh, I won 17 of them. But uh, wrestling was uh, was always first and foremost in my heart, so I uh, there wasn't much going on in the boxing business, boxing world, uh, back in those days anyway, so I decided to follow my first love when I was wrestling. So you really kind of end up right first wrestling with Larry, with your brother, the uh, Missouri Mauler? Yeah. Uh, well, I had some matches and, and, and stuff. Uh, and I, I was in the business for oh, the best part of a year, I guess, before I went to New York with my brother. And uh, that's when uh, I was 19 years old when we uh, sold out and uh, headlined the uh, show in Madison Square Garden. It's the Hamilton Brothers against Rock and Perez. Biggest house I ever drew in the old garden. Yeah, that's an impressive, impressive feat. Not only just headlining it, doing the, the amount of people that you did and the money you drew, obviously, but being so young, you're only 19. And what was that like, being so young and headlining MSG? Well, I felt like I needed somebody to prop me up when we were waiting backstage. We're surrounded by about 20 cops, and they are doing the intro, playing the intro music. And... Uh, I'm nervous. I didn't think I, I didn't think I'd be able to walk to the ring. But we were surrounded by so many cops, and it was such close quarters and everything. You know, they were, they walked me to the ring, so I didn't have any problem. And I got in the ring and stood up, and they had all the lights on in the building at that time until they started the announcements. And I looked all around, and I saw the twenty thousand some odd people there. And I thought to myself, I said, well, being a little old guy from St. Joe, Missouri, and Kansas City is the biggest place I'd ever seen until I went to New York. <laughs> I said, I said, what the hell am I doing here? Hmm. <laughs> but as soon as I got one of those famous kicks from Pere- uh, from Raqqa, 
uh, one of those famous kicks in the face and everything. I snapped out of it, and I was okay from then on. That is just uh, amazing, kind of just to be a part of something like that. And that was really the precursor to the WWF, right? I mean, this was capital wrestling, right? I'm sorry, what was that? This was the precursor to the WWF, right? Or the WWWF. This was capital wrestling, right, at MSG? Yeah, this, uh, well, this was the New York office, as it was at the time. I forget what the hell they called it. Yeah. It, was, uh, it, was, it was the New York office. And um, Vince McMahon Sr. Mm-hmm. was uh, was part of it. He didn't he didn't own all of it, but he was a part of it. Yeah, this was Pula back. Coriani was, was the booker, and he was a big old Russian guy and uh, spoke with a very pronounced Russian accent. But uh, he liked me and Larry as a team, and uh, one of the, and that's how he utilized us as a team. And you really never went back to New York much, right, after that? There wasn't much um, going back there. Couldn't stand it. Really? You didn't like didn't New like York? New, okay. I didn't like New York. Never never did like New York. I was a little country boy from St. Joe. But, uh, I was doing well, very well, in other places. Uh, the business in New York uh, was down, and... It was very expensive living there, so if you were making big money, you were losing money. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I uh, I decided to go ahead and, and go, as my brother did, to go ahead and uh, work the uh, other independent territories around the country. There were a lot of territories around then. And where do you end up after that? I mean, you went so, to, so many different places, but is that when you head back to the western states, or did you head off? Out west, NWA Hollywood at that point. No, I uh, I stayed basically on the East Coast and uh, went to the Midwest, which is my home. Anyway, St. Mm-hmm. Joe, Missouri. I went back there and worked for a while, but uh, and I went to went to Tulsa, which back in those days Tulsa was a territory, and then from there I went into Amarillo, and cause Amarillo was a territory then. Mm-hmm. And uh, back and forth between there until I uh, came back to Florida. And from Florida, I was leaving Florida. I'd been there for about four months, five months, maybe. And uh, back in those days, that's all you really stayed in the territory, four or five months. Because you're drawing capacity. Because you were there, you were in the major towns every week. If you were one of the feature guys, and if you were in the in the towns every week and everything, three or four months, pretty much wore you out, you know. So mm-hmm. You're drawing capacity. So I was leaving Florida and uh, was on my way back to St. Joe. And uh, I, I was living in Clearwater at the time. Of course, the office was in Tampa, the old Thomas Jefferson Hotel. And uh, I got a call from the, from the office, and they wanted me to come over. I drove across the causeway into the uh, hotel there, and I sat down with uh, Cowboy Luttrell and uh, Eddie Graham. He said, what's your plans? And I told him I was going back to St. Joe and everything. He said, well, you've got to go through Atlanta to get there. He said, and they're looking for somebody. He said, well, you want to stop and do a couple of shots in Atlanta? I said, yeah, I'll do that. And uh, that's how... Uh, that's how we really got started uh, as a team. They yeah, liked my know, work. They liked my work here, and uh, Tom was in Charlotte already, and he was established as the Bolo, and was getting ready to leave. So they brought Tom in, and things uh, up, and we we gelled from the very first night. You know, we looked like we'd been together for years. And I enjoyed his companionship and his work in the ring, and and he did mine as well. So we had uh, 15 years of uh, great success in the wrestling business. Yeah, Tom Bernesto. I mean, that's interesting, kind of the way that happens, almost by accident or almost by happenstance, that you guys become a team. And they say, hey, you know, hey, you know, why don't you just uh, meet Tom Bernesto? They're looking for somebody to team up. So 
you said it was kind of instant chemistry, obviously 15 years of great tag team uh, work. Yeah. What did what did you think when you first met him? Was it just it was just instant chemistry right off the bat. He was just a great guy to work no, with. No, I knew there was I knew there was something special as well as he did because of uh, our work in the ring. We had never we had never even met. He knew my brother from uh, from the Carolinas, but I had never met Tom. I'd heard of him and so on, but uh, like I say, we had never met personally. And uh, we went out there in a tag match that night in uh, Atlanta. And it was like we'd been together for years on the very first night. You know, I knew uh, we had something special. And he recognized it, too. So we sit down and talk later. And, and uh, that's that's basically how the team of the Assassins was formed. Where does that kind of the name come from, like when you guys come together? Was he the Assassin first and then you guys become the Assassins? No, I was the Assassin first. Right. right. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Yep. And then he becomes the other assassin. Yeah, and everybody so, used to mix it up, and they'd always call him assassin number one, even yeah, though he was yeah. the second assassin, because yep. I guess he was the older of the two. I don't know why, but that, uh, it didn't matter. As long as as long as they were talking about the assassins, I didn't care who was one and who was two. Neither did he. So when that team is going along, who's like who's booking it, and who's thinking like, okay, uh, you know, I have something here. These guys are going to draw some, you know, legit money. Who booked the team? Yeah, who yeah who was booking that at, at that point? Was that Jim Barnett or who was who who was kind of booking at that, that point? Oh, Leo Garibaldi was booking Atlanta. Yeah, each territory had a different booker. Right. Eddie Graham was the booker in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget who was the booker. Uh, oh, uh, George Becker was the booker in the Carolinas, and uh, so on and so forth. You know. So with Leo booking down there in Georgia, did he immediately like sense that you guys are going to be able to draw money because you guys are drawing tremendous heat? You know, there, there's all these stories about riots and, and death threats, and you know, you guys really, really were hated down there. Was it was that like yeah. a good was that a good sense right away that uh, okay, these guys they're onto something here? Well, yeah, we almost had a riot the very first night we uh, were together in Atlanta, and nobody knew us. <clears throat> So, that so gets, what? Uh, what happened? That was a good indication that uh, that uh, we gelled well together as a team. So what happened with the riot? How did it kind of start? Well, I mean, it we survived it. That's a, that's about all you can say about a riot. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do to cause it? With our normal style in the ring, people had never seen that before down here, <clears throat> and they became so infuriated because it was like. Our style was we did some really fast tagging in and out of the ring, and it was almost like two guys on one. And these people there had never seen that, and they they went crazy. And how would you kind of describe this style? Just I know you said it's something different, and there's some fast tags and two on one. But how would you kind of describe your style? It's just teamwork. We went out there always as a team, and never as you know as. Ninety percent of your tag team combinations never went out there to wrestle as a team. They always went out there and had like individual matches, you know. But we knew what we knew the basic fundamentals of tag team wrestling, and that's that's what it is. It's tag team wrestling. That means you're, <laughs> there's there's two guys working as one. And that's how we uh, that's how we did it. As far as you guys, and maybe even more you in particular, did you prefer tag team wrestling over singles? Yeah, with Tom. And you actually prefer you know tag over singles, but just with him, or or just in general? What is it about tag team wrestling? No, well, I prefer uh, I preferred single wrestling when I didn't have Tom with me. Okay, so it's just the chemistry with him was just so great yeah. that you just loved that tag team wrestling with him. And then, obviously, you know, there's many other good tag teams you guys worked. Uh, the Funks, a great tag team. What, what, kind of, what were your thoughts on working the Funks? The Funks? Did you say yep. the Funks? Yep, Terry and Dory. They were a great team. You know, uh, I didn't uh, – they, they uh, actually – Russell, uh, their style was actually a good bit like ours. You know, they didn't go out and do individual matches. They went out and did tag team wrestling. 
which is what the thing was all about anyway. Also, guys like the Kentuckians, the Torres brothers. I mean, there was a bunch of good tag teams for you guys to work, right, in, in that era. I mean, it seemed mm-hmm. like, a, like a good territory for tag team wrestling. Kentuckians. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. They were uh, – the Kentuckians were a phenomenal team. Both of them gigantic in stature, physical stature. Uh, both of them were good wrestlers. You know, uh, they weren't they weren't great on the mat wrestlers, but they were so damn big and strong and had had such good balance. It was difficult to get them off their feet onto the mat. So that made uh, to me they and you always have to go with who you made so much money with and everything. And we made uh, we made an awful lot of money with those guys. No doubt about it. And you guys are twelve time. NWA Georgia Tag Team Champions. I mean, it, quite a, a run there. I mean, you probably never expected it because you wanted to go back to Missouri, right? You never expected to have such great success in, in Georgia. To be real honest with you, I knew that wherever Tom and I went, we would be tremendously successful because we had that type of chemistry and we were that type of team. And uh, there, was just, there was just no getting around it. I mean, uh, we were... I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, which I am, I guess, because I'm proud of what we accomplished. But uh, we were we were as good as it got back in those days. Did you hear a lot of teams after this? Because I've heard it through the years is that a lot of teams try to, like, mimic the teamwork and the assassins. So do you hear that through, you know, through the years that a lot of teams tried to kind of emulate you guys? Oh, yeah. They put masks on copy our outfits and call themselves the assassins and this and that and so on. Yeah, you always had that. You always had guys that were trying to capitalize, guys that couldn't make it on their own, uh, was trying to capitalize on the hard work and the efforts that uh, that uh, the guys that were successful put forth uh, to be successful. And even, and even other teams just kind of like in the style of the two-on-ones and the fast tags and the you know, the, the great teamwork. I feel like you guys definitely kind of set the bar for a lot of future great tag teams that were to come after you. Yeah. Well, what we, what we did was we showed the world, the wrestling world, and anybody else that was watching, which included wrestlers, the way tag team matches should be conducted. And consequently, those that were intelligent enough to uh, to copy what we were doing, or to emulate what we were doing, we're pretty much uh, successful down the line. Now, the Assassins were so popular, and you guys made so much money all over the place. I mean, Canada, Japan, Australia, you guys kind of went all over the place. But how come when you guys went to JCP and Jim Crocker Promotions in the Mid-Atlantic, you weren't the Assassins? You know, you're the Mighty Bolo, he was the Great Bolo. What was the, the change up there? Well, because Tom was already over tremendously and had been there prior to the the, uh, creation of the Assassins, he had been there as the Bolo. So when we went back, all we did was smart enough to, and he was over tremendously and drew tremendous money. So uh, all we did was go back and and capitalize on on his fame and popularity and uh, call ourselves the great Bolo and Bolo. Makes uh, perfect sense. So when you guys actually break up and it's, it's the end of the assassins, what you know, what kind of caused the breakup? I mean, obviously uh, the unmasking of Tom kind of puts the end of the team, right? Yeah, but there was no hard feelings or ill will or or anything like that. We never had a. Uh, we were together fifteen years and never had a cross word, but. Uh, it was Thomas, twelve years older than me. Excuse me. And it was time for Tom. Decided that it was time for him to retire. He had an opportunity to uh, to become a booker, and we sit and talked about it. And I encouraged him to take that position as a booker, which he did. Then you go on a singles run, and you have the or one of the longest running feuds of all time against Mister Wrestling Number Two. Yeah, what are you, he just what are you, recently passed away in Hawaii. Yes, yep. 
What did you think about old Mr. Wrestling number two? Great competitor. He's a great competitor, and anybody that likes competition would uh, tremendously enjoy going up against Mr. Wrestling number two, Johnny Walker. The kind of testament to you guys and how great you were were the, the length of the feud and how long it went, right? Because if it's not making money, it's not going to go on. So they kept that feud going for a long time. Must have made a lot of money with Mr. Wrestling, too. Yes. Yeah, we did. Uh, we made money and uh, our, our uh, competitive feud lasted a long time because neither one of us was going to give an inch. Did you guys remain close at all? Through the years? Never talked to him. Oh, so. But I had deep respect for him. I had deep respect for his ability in the ring, as obviously he did mine, and so on. But as far as being friends or associating with one another, we didn't. Is that also because of kind of keeping kayfabe and things like that, or is it just one of those things where you guys just, you know, he went his way and you went yours? We just lived our lifestyle, individual so, lifestyles. Gotcha. So after that, they basically kind of try to reform the Assassins, but with Randy Colley, right? Yeah. What do you think about putting Randy kind of to replace Tom? Because it's some big shoes to fill. Randy was a great friend and a great guy, and he was a damn good partner. Nobody could ever replace Tom. We weren't looking to replace Tom. We were looking to fill a gap. And he did a good job of filling that gap. The gap I'm yeah. referring to is a partner. Yes. And then, you know, a few years later, a little bit down the road, then in Mid-South Wrestling with Bill Watts, you end up teaming with Hercules and kind of, you know, reform the assassins. Again, Hercules Hernandez. What do you think about Hercules Hernandez as one of the assassins? Ray was green as grass when we teamed up, but he was a very willing student. Uh, he listened. And everything that he was told, he tried to implement in his uh, performance in the ring. And I have nothing but respect and admiration for Ray. He and I got along well and never had a crossword either. So did you think that with kind of just trying to reform the assassin, is it one of those things where it's just trying to get Randy over and trying to get Herc over because it's, it's obviously was a successful money-drawing gimmick. you think that was just kind of just a way to do business then and really try to elevate these guys? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, it's been so damn long ago, I don't remember all the intimate details of the situation and so on, but it's, it's, uh, it's certainly possible that that was one of the motives. Eventually, kind of retire the, the golden mask of the assassins. What was kind of the thought process of basically, you know, retiring the, the assassin gimmick. The gimmick, the, the kind of the, the golden mask of the assassin when, when you decided to stop being the assassin. Yeah, I just retired everything, you know. <laughs> there was no sense of trying to carry on. And uh, when there came a point in time, too, where, where uh, age creeped up on me, age and old injuries especially. But... Uh, the old injuries and, and stuff, uh, I had a severe back injury earlier in my career that uh, used to hinder me to a certain extent. And when that flared up and uh, got to the point where it didn't go away, it was a constant uh, hindrance and everything, that's when I said, well, it's time to hang them up. And I did. Before you... I, hung them up, I never... I never Put a pair of tights on again. Before you decided to kind of hang him up and retire, you wore the flame, though, right? You decided to use yeah. kind of a different gimmick yeah. as well. What's, what's the story behind the flame? Well, I was going into uh, Alabama, and Alabama was one of those territories that they had bookers that really were rather unscrupulous at times and didn't give a shit about anybody else's. Uh, name or character so they used two or three different sets of assassins so uh, the assassins name of the assassins was beat to death down there and because most of the guys not, not most of them but all of them uh, were uh, inferior performers so 
so the assassin name meant nothing, so I just decided to uh, go in with a new name. And nobody had ever used a flame before, and nobody had thrown fire before, so I did. It's a great, uh, it's a great point. Now, as far as you said, you know, you had some severe back injuries, you, you never kind of wanted to you know, get back in the ring again, and, and you end up retiring. What did you kind of think of, of when you decided to open up your own promotion and kind of get into Deep South Wrestling and start owning and promoting and booking a promotion on your own? I thought to myself, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make this the best promotion around. And I didn't miss it far if I missed it at all. So with with kind of like Deep South Wrestling and and getting really kind of still being a trainer and and kind of really getting involved there, how did you end up in WCW? Uh, they bought the wrestling. Turner, yeah, Turner bought uh, bought wrestling, and WCW was uh, was part of uh, uh, Turner's organization. Mm-hmm. And Jim Hurd was the president, and so on of uh, WCW. And he and I sat down. He called me in his office, and he and I sat down and worked out a deal. Or he wanted me to uh, to be not in the ring, which I was through with the ring anyway, but he wanted me to supervise the wrestling end of the company that uh, Turner had bought, which, you know, that, uh, that satisfied me. And I will always be uh, grateful and indebted to uh, Jim Hurd for all he did for me. He was, he was a, a lot of people didn't like Jim Hurd because he was very gruff attitude, and he'd come right out and he'd play punches. He told you exactly what he thought. And if he didn't like it, uh, you damn well knew it right away. <laughs> so uh, I had a lot of respect for Jim Hurd, and I care for him a great deal, although we haven't, haven't kept in touch. But uh, if he happens to hear this interview and everything, I want him to know that I'm forever grateful for what he did. Yeah, you usually don't hear you know too much of Jim Hurd or what he's up to nowadays. Really, I guess he's kind of you know obviously you know retired, and I'm not even sure where he's living nowadays. Yeah, I'm sure he's retired. Yeah. So or when you he may he may he may have expired. Who knows? You know. Uh, that I'm not sure of. I think he. I'm pretty sure he's still alive. But as far as you know, WCW at that point. You were behind the scenes and more of a trainer? Were you on the booking committee? Was it a mixture of both? I did it all. I did it all. And are you the one that started the power plant? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what what was the thought process in starting the WCW power plant? Like, what was the thought process that you wanted to make sure these guys are trained? You want to create your own stars from within? No, I didn't care about training my own stars from within. I just want to make sure that new guys breaking into business broke in the right way and learned the right things because nobody else was out there was uh, was doing it. Uh, the guys that were up there at WWF at the time, they uh, the guys that were coming out of their school and everything certainly wasn't getting the proper education that they needed. And I just made up my mind that uh, nobody that goes through my school is going to be uh, going to come out uneducated, and they didn't. I had a lot of them quit, not a lot of them, but I had a few of them quit because they couldn't take it. But uh, I didn't slack off just because I had a few quitters. Yeah, they always say the power plant was one of the toughest to kind of get through. That if you were able to get through the power plant, you were going to become something in the business. Well, I was going to make sure that WCW, uh, as far as quality of talent is concerned, I was going to make damn sure that WCW surpassed WWE on everything in every way, shape, or form. And we managed to do that. And it was business ethics and so on that, uh, that caused WCW to go out of business. Be think sold of, out, yeah, eventually sold to uh, Vince and the, and the yeah. WWF there. And obviously, you know, the power plant closes down. But if you think about the power plant, some pretty good names kind of coming through there. DDP, 
Sundell's Page, yeah. Goldberg, the Giant was in there. Uh, Nash was in there for for a period. I mean, the power plant had some really you know big, huge names and huge stars come out of there. Yeah, I was proud of those guys. They worked their hearts out, you know, and uh, because they weren't big stars when they were uh, in uh, in the power plant, but. I knew I, there's just you, you just get a feeling about certain guys and everything, and uh, most of those guys that made it and everything, I had that feeling about them, you know. Now, DDP, to me, he was a hit and a miss. Uh, that I mean, I wasn't sure at times. I wasn't sure because DDP had his own own mindset, and he would drift away at times from from the way that I was teaching him. And it took me a little while to get him out of that that uh, mode. But uh, he did, and he he became quite successful. And he's a good friend. Yes, definitely. He, um, you know, through the years, he got in late into the business and kind of started out doing a lot of kind of like goofy gimmicks and weird stuff, and then really kind of honed his craft, and he became great, and he kind of credits a lot of that to the power plant. Yeah. Well, you know, when you got... See, that was the whole... The whole uh, idea of the power plant is to teach these guys fundamentally correct and the correct thing, the correct way to do things the correct way to say things and just, you know, be correct in, in all facets of your game and everything. And when, when DDP finally snapped to that concept, then he was off and running. There's a lot of comparisons now to the WWE Performance Center with the power plant. Obviously, you know, they said Triple H kind of took took a lot of ideas and kind of put it into his own. You kind of see that with the, the Performance Center, that it's kind of like a souped-up version of the power plant with a little bit of mix of NFL in there? Are you, are you talking about uh, WWE's uh, yes. training plan? Yep. No, I don't see much resemblance whatsoever. And I certainly don't see much resemblance out of the finished products. No, definitely not that, not on that part. But the even the way the 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 rings are set up, it almost kind of reminds me of the way that the power plant was set up. Maybe not from a, a perspective of actual talent, but the way it physically looks with the rings. It, I'm just kind of getting a a vibe that they kind of were taking some stuff from the power plant. Quite possible. Quite possible. I don't want to say yes or no because, to be honest with you. I don't watch their stoke, their show, their product, so I can't really uh, say one way or the other. I've inadvertently seen a couple of their shows down through the years and everything, but as far as being a steady viewer, no way. Is there any sort of like reason? It's just the way the business is now. You're not interested in it anymore. Oh, I, I'm not interested in anything that Vince McMahon uh, has got his hands on. Have you got a chance to see AEW at all? AEW, it's the, the new league uh, with Dusty Rhodes' son, Cody's kind of at the helm. Um, basically a new promotion out of Jacksonville, Florida, but it's obviously it's a national promotion. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, so I can't make a, uh, a judgment one way or the other on it. Now, just going back to kind of developmental for a second, you actually did kind of restart Deep South. Deep South was kind of back, and, and you were running it as a developmental territory for the WWE for a period of time. Yeah, we ran shows, you know, uh, with the uh, with the kids that uh, were training down there, and that's where we used Deep South as uh, as the logo for the company, and did quite well. Yeah, it, it definitely kind of had a lot of, if you really look, a lot of big names, a lot of stars, and guys that would become something came from Deep South. But it didn't really last long, and I guess they, they had their eye more on, I guess, OVW and, and, and eventually FCW, right? Yeah, they, uh, I don't know, they, 
it's a long, complicated story, I guess, and uh, uh, I don't know. The, I don't know all the facts, all the whys and wherefores and whatnots and all that. But uh, I know we give it a hell of a run, and we had a an excellent product. And uh, and then uh, Vince cut off my talent supply. Yeah, and I guess Johnny Ace just one night just kind of shut it down and closed it down and. There's no really explanation, right? But we all knew what it was. They were more focused on. They wanted FCW, and I was putting our show. Our we were we were taping a weekly show, and I was putting our show on the air in various places. One was Detroit, Michigan, and Vince did not like the fact that we were on Detroit, Michigan, and he wasn't. So he went to the manager of the station and told him that he would replace, he wanted to replace the Deep South tape with his show. And the manager refused, and Vince wanted to know why. He said, because the Deep South is a better show. And that was my death knell. That's when he shut me down. Oh, wow. Didn't even know that part of it. I figured it had to do something with FCW. Wow, didn't even know that, that part of the story. <laughs> There's a lot of parts of these stories and everything that nobody knows. Yeah, yeah. Quiet. Yep. Now, as far as kind of yourself, and I know you, you and, and your son, Nick Patrick, very famous referee. I mean, obviously a lot of people know him from Georgia and obviously from WCW, even the NWO. You know, what's it like to have to have your son kind of follow, follow in the footsteps, so to speak? Well, it's always it's, it's always nice to know that uh, that uh, your son or your daughter uh, respects what you did and wants to emulate or try to emulate what you did and so on. And Nick hurt his back and, and blew a knee out, and that hurt uh, that affected his work in the ring and. And all of a sudden, bingo, he's a referee. We made him a referee. And in my opinion, in his heyday, he was the best referee in the business. And I was just as proud of him as being a referee as it would have been if he'd have been world champion as a wrestler. That is great. He definitely was one of the greatest referees. I, I used to love him. You know, go watching WCW and especially when he joined the NWO too, he got to show a little bit of his personality and, and a bit yeah. of his character too, which was fun. Now, as we hit the wind down, start to wind it down, head towards the finish. You basically, I mean, you wrestled for basically part of five decades. If you think about it, a wrestler, promoter, trainer, I mean, even over five decades. I mean, part of the wrestling business for so long. Do you have some favorite matches and some favorite kind of opponents through the years? Matches. My favorite matches because they were all, in my opinion, and I think I know what's good and what's bad, the matches that I had with Dick Steinborn, I think, were some of the greatest matches that uh, was ever in the ring. Dick Steinborn was probably my best singles opponent, and the Kentuckians were my best tag team opponents. Do you have a favorite territory? I mean, obviously, Georgia Championship Wrestling was, was kind of where you became such a big star, but you're part of the Western States, and it'd be a uh, Hollywood, Mid-America, Central States. I mentioned Mid-South. You were in Memphis with CWA. Do you have a favorite territory? A favorite character? Mm-hmm. No, a favorite territory. Oh, favorite territory. Yeah, Georgia. That just became your home, right? I mean, that would, that became home base and really just... Uh, well, I, was, a, I, I wasn't living here then. I was still uh, still based out of Missouri. Now, why Georgia? Because you had the most success there, and you probably drew the most money there. No, I, well, we had just as much success in other places as we had here in Georgia. It's just that uh, I like the people here. I like the state. I like the atmosphere. Uh, I just, <laughs> I just, uh, I just like Georgia. You know. And when it's all kind of 
you know, said and done, and people are looking back at Jody Hamilton, they're looking back at the assassin, and they're just kind of going through the career. It's like, oh, my God, what a career, what a huge draw. The assassin's one of the greatest tag teams of all time. When they look back, what do you think is kind of the lasting legacy of the assassin Jody Hamilton? Oh, I'd like to be remembered as as a great ring competitor, a good drawing card for the business. But most of all, I like to be remembered as an asset to the wrestling profession. Of course, you do have a book out there by Crowbar Press called Assassin, which people can pick up. But do you have any other plugs? Do you have social media? Do you do that? Or you don't really get into social media and things like that? Nah. This is about as social media as I get. <laughs> this interview we're doing. I got gotcha. you. Now, it's been uh, awesome to get to talk to uh, such a legend like yourself, the assassin himself. Mr. Hamilton, thank you so much uh, for all the time tonight. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for calling me. You take care. Have a good day. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron and also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother.